But uh, sometimes someone, or sometimes we or someone we know takes it maybe just like a little bit too far. Um, And maybe after I tell you this story, you'll think, okay, Maddie, it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, But this is my favorite story to tell, and I'm sorry if you've already heard it once or like seven times. So um, growing up, I was like hyper fixated on the movie The Prince of Egypt. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Um, and when I say like hyper fixated, I mean I watched this movie every single day for like a year, like maybe more. Um, and I think that might just be because it's the movie that my mom put on for me like before I like took a nap during the day. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I just loved it. And it's been like so influential to me like as a small child in my faith and even like into my adulthood. Um, but my favorite scene is so after God has like delivered his people from Egypt, they're like walking, you know, they're walking out of, the, out of Egypt, they're making this exodus and they're singing this beautiful song when you believe um, and it's just a song about like the miracle that's like happening in that moment um, and they come to the Red Sea and God parts the waters and they're walking through the Red Sea and it's like nighttime and everyone has these torches and it's just like this, it's beautiful. Like it's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. And there's this little girl and she has her torch and she like, you know, moves to the side and like in the light of this torch, there's what appears to be like a whale figure or like, I think it's really just like a big fish or a shark or something, but it's like so mesmerizing and like, thinking about being there in that, like, I don't think this, like, maybe really happened, maybe it did, I don't know, but, like, thinking about being there in that moment is just, like, the most beautiful thing to me, and I loved it, so fast forward, I'm, like, 16 or 17 at this point, and my family decides we're all going to take a trip to SeaWorld, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, so we do our little SeaWorld thing, Um, We're there all day, it's hot, we're in Florida, and the last thing we decide to do during the day is go to the Shamu show. And it's nighttime, it's dark, we're like sitting there waiting for the show to start, and like the background music stops, the lights go up, and I'm like, okay, the show's about to begin. And the song, When You Believe, starts playing, and this whale just jumps out of the water, (laughs) and I begin to sob like audibly and like I'm sobbing and my family's just unfazed because I do this all the time and (laughs) and but my mom's sitting next to me and she's like are you okay and I'm like no this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life like God is here like I am just like so overwhelmed and mesmerized by this entire experience right and I I think about this like at least once a week Um, because it truly reminds me of the presence of God in my life. Okay, so I'm going to transition here a little bit, but we'll circle back to this. So if you've ever read the book of Job, you know it's an absolute just wild ride. It's chaos. Um, But the beginning introduces this guy named Job who was blameless, righteous, and he feared God. These are like his three main characteristics. So behind the scenes, we see this examiner or adversary. Um, There's a few different names for this person who um, comes to God along with some angels. And God kind of points out Job and says, consider my 
my servant Job, he's blameless, righteous, he fears God, and he shuns evil. He's a pretty solid dude. Um, And this adversary responds and says, you know, Job might not be so holy if he loses everything you've blessed him with. So God says, okay, go ahead, take all of his things. Um, Just leave his body alone. So Job is stripped not only of his oxen and his camels, but his children also die. And when you read this, the way it's written is like very nonchalant. But if you slow down and think about it, this whole situation is just becoming extremely traumatic. So Job continues to be faithful to God and even worships him. And eventually this examiner comes back after like an unknown amount of time and says, okay, so Job can obviously survive without all of these things. Um, But if he doesn't have his health, surely he's going to curse you. So God allows the examiner to afflict Job's entire body with these really painful sores. So now, not only does he not have his possessions, the things that support his very livelihood, his family, where he derives most of his purpose, he's also extremely sick. And if you consider the time frame in which Job would have existed, his identity is pretty much gone. He's lost his work, his family, his possible future family, and now he's wildly sick, which probably makes him unclean to society, and he's not able to effectively participate in whatever social circle he's in. So after all this, Job's wife, who's still around, comes to him and says, Job, give up. Like, just give up. It's better for you to curse God and die. Like, this isn't worth it. Just lay down and give up. Um, keeping in mind that anything that happens to Job directly affects her. So like not only has Job lost everything, his wife has also lost everything too. Um, But Job remains faithful. So then Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come onto the scene. And Eliphaz comes in and says, you know, you should probably take this up with God. This is like beyond the scope of yourself. Bildad assumes that Job just isn't wise enough and should refer to those who have come before Job to understand how God deals with those who have sinned. And Zophar kind of says uh, to Job that it doesn't really matter what he thinks is true or if he actually is blameless, but God is just much more superior, so he should just give in to whatever punishment he's enduring. So if he just stops sinning, the pain will stop or it won't, because he's not actually sinning. Like I said, it's just chaos. The whole thing's chaos. So they show up, and they're all trying to make sense of what's going on with Job. He must have done something to warrant this torment. God would not be unjust to Job if he was truly blameless. This is kind of the consensus among everyone, except for Job. So they each take turns kind of giving their two cents on the situation. But Job keeps insisting that he hasn't done anything wrong, and he wants so badly to be heard by God so he can make a case for himself. And this isn't because anyone told him that he needed to, but because he's actually just in the worst situation of his entire life. He is at the point of desperation. So then there's this other guy who comes into the scene. His name's Elihu, and he's been like watching this conversation go on from the sidelines, um, and he's waited to jump in because he's younger than everyone else. So he throws in his thoughts, and he thinks that everyone's wrong. 
Job is wrong for justifying himself and not God, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar haven't been able to refute Job. So Elihu is just angry and frustrated, and, but he doesn't have any like good answers either. Um, so everyone's just like grasping at the air, trying to make sense of like this, this chaotic situation. But what I find really interesting about all of this argument is that no one considers the fact that maybe Job's suffering isn't coming from Job or from God. The two logical explanations are that one, Job has sinned and brought suffering on himself, or that God is choosing to make Job suffer for whatever reason God feels like. There's no logical third option, which is really ironic. And if they just had a little bit more information, then maybe they'd be, they'd be able to make sense of it all. But, but they just don't. So finally, after chapters and chapters of all of this argument, um, God shows up, and this is where we get our Old Testament reading from today. So this is Job 38, 1 through 7, and 34 to 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you will declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into the mass and clouds cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lion when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey? when its young one cries to God and wander about for the lack of food. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing that stands out to me in this passage is the phrase, gird up your loins, <laughs> um, <laughs> which really is just an expression that means get ready. And I know that if like God were about to confront me, I would love to have um, some kind of warning because I'm sure that's very um, overwhelming. <laughs> But the way God decides to address Job is interesting because you would think that he would disclose some of the conversation he'd previously had with this adversary or examiner, but he, he doesn't. And there's no encouragement or acknowledgement of suffering either. And it's frustrating even being the reader of this because you expect God to say, Job, I just want to let you know you're right and you haven't done anything wrong. But instead, God asks some like 70-ish rhetorical questions to Job that challenge Job's understanding of pretty much everything. And they're not light questions either. They're pretty in your face. And the point of these is that no, Job was not there when the earth was created. He does not know the intricacies of creation. He doesn't provide prey for anything. He doesn't control the waters and he doesn't provide wisdom to the mind and he does not know why the suffering has occurred. Okay, now don't get me wrong. It's not unreasonable to try to make sense of a situation, especially one as chaotic as Job's. It makes sense why Job wants to be heard by God so badly, 
And it makes sense why all of his friends are trying to justify his suffering. Because something is simply not right and everyone knows it. But no one knows why and no one can figure it out. So this is where Job has landed. He's come to this place and he still has nothing. He's covered in sores and he's confused and he's suffering in a myriad of ways, all while being in the direct presence of God, which I think is a very important part of this story. God is not far from Job's suffering and hasn't been the entire time. Regardless though, this is still a hopeless place for Job. And at a glance, I think that we'd see Job as a hopeless story, a story about enduring pain of all sorts, but it might be good to look at some things Job says in conversation with his friends a little bit earlier. So in chapter 19, Job is replying to Bildad and says, though I call for help, there is no justice. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And that really struck a chord with me, um, looking back on the countless number of COVID deaths, riots fueled by racial injustice, and the ever-present climate crisis. How many times have we, or people we've known, called for help and there was no justice? Where do we find justice for families who have lost loved ones and never got to say goodbye because the hospitals wouldn't allow them in? Or children who basically missed out on an entire year of school? Or celebrations spent in isolation? And where do we find justice for our African-American brothers and sisters who have died? or for the people who are being dehumanized, or for those who have been wrongly accused? And where is there justice for every living thing that's lost its home to a wildfire, or large amounts of ocean taken up by oil spills, or to the array of animals that will never exist ever again? Where is there justice? And is there hope? We might feel as though we've come to a stopping point in many areas, even just in our own lives, which begs the question, Where have we landed, and is there anywhere to go from here? Luckily, I think that Job does offer some hope, even in the midst of his suffering, whether it's obvious to us or not. A few chapters later, he talks about his old life, which really um, wasn't that long ago, but he remembers what it used to be like. And it's interesting, because he doesn't mention his possessions or belongings, but he talks about how he had a good reputation, he was able to be with his children, He was able to serve the poor and be a father to the fatherless, and he talks about how God was with him. And he acknowledges that it didn't always used to be this way, and it doesn't always have to be this way either. There is this sliver of hope that Job seems to be holding on to for things to change, and I think that hope comes from remembering life before when God seemed to be close by. And I think that this is something that we can emulate too. We remember redeeming moments of the past and have faith that these were not the last redeeming moments. Because although God may seem far, God is always quite close to us. We remember the days the COVID vaccine became available to us and we finally got to look forward to large gatherings and meals together and hugs and kisses. We remember even before that when we walked into stores surrounded by strangers without any kind of anxiety. We remember marches in our cities They amplified the voices of our African-American brothers and sisters with the hope that their experiences will be more clearly seen and heard and that inequality will no longer be central to their story. Remember the beginning of COVID when the entire world was in lockdown and plants and animals began to reclaim urban spaces and air and noise pollution dramatically declined? 
at least for the time being. I'm not entirely sure of a bird's capacity for memory, but I am sure that they remember the nests that they've made to bring new life into the world, anticipating that the next nest they construct will be free from flames. In the Greek, there's something called a perfect verb, which basically means that something has happened and it continues to happen. And as silly as it may sound, when I remember the moment that I saw an orca breach the waters of SeaWorld, I am reminded of the moments that God has been there, the ways that God is with me now, and the presence of God that I know goes before me. It's something I continue to remember, and I will probably remember always. And although I recognize that this moment was small and lasted an entire like 20 to 30 minutes, it continues to be a source of hope for me, as does many other moments that I've experienced God's goodness. So um, this is a spoiler alert if you haven't read the entire book of Job. Um, If we skip to the end, we see that Job's life is restored twofold. He now has double the amount of oxen and camels. He has sheep. He has seven sons and three daughters. He's no longer sick. Um, But this restoration doesn't come because Job figured it out or from his friends finally finding the reason for everything. It doesn't even come from Job girding up his loins like a man and just enduring the suffering until it got better, but from God who met him in his suffering, from God who was never very far from Job, although Job couldn't quite understand that at the time. There were moments, I'm sure, when Job did just want to lay down and give up, but throughout this book, he is constantly saying that he just wants God to hear him, and I think that's because he understands the deep restorative nature of God. So in our own moments of suffering or disappointment or confusion or days that are just very overwhelming or grief or fatigue, there might not be anything to make it better because that's just the reality of the moment. And it's okay to sit in that. And we might feel as though we've come to a stopping point in a space where hope isn't found. But we do know that God is present and not far from us. God has never been far from us. And there is something that is so redeeming about the mere presence of God that we find hope in it because we know the promise of redemption, because we've seen it before, and we will see it again. Pray with me. God, we are so thankful for your presence. We are thankful for the moments that you've been with us, even when we haven't recognized it or known it. We know that you go before us, and we are so thankful We pray that we would be able to recognize your presence in our lives and to remember the moments that have been healing and restorative. And we pray for more healing and restorative moments in the future. In your name we pray, amen.